All right. Well, good morning, Arcadia. We are glad to see you. Uh, if you are uh, new to Redemption Church, again, we welcome you. We would love to be able to connect with you in some way. You can talk to one of the four pastors that's around here today. You can talk to Andrea at the uh, Connect Desk, whatever you need to do. Uh, if you're new to Redemption, let me tell you a little bit about Redemption Church. We're one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And we're currently in a series that we just restarted last week that we were in the middle of when the pandemic hit called Countercultural Convictions. And so today we're going to be talking uh, about the topic of gender, and we have our uh, founding pastor here to be able to come and talk to us, and we're, we're going to get to know him in a little bit in just a minute. And I imagine that's why some of you are here. This is really exciting um, and uh, a wonderful tribute to uh, Justin. So a couple of quick announcements. Number one, on, uh, it connected to this countercultural conviction series, on Tuesday, September 21st, in, in our Tempe congregation from 6.30 to 8, we're having our next Redemption Live event where you can attend it in person that Tuesday night at Tempe, or you can watch the live stream on YouTube. It's just like the first one that we did back in January. Uh, you can watch it on the live stream, or you can wait and watch the recording later, however you want to have it delivered to you. But we're going to be doing it on uh, sex and gender and sexual identity and, and all of those things. We're going to have a panel discussion and all that. So we would encourage you to uh, look into that and be aware of that. And then also uh, this coming Sunday, so the 19th, uh, Tyler James is going to be doing child dedications again, and then there's going to be another one in November. You people in Arcadia are right, really prolific at this, so uh, that's good news. We believe in church growth, and so thank you for that. But uh, if you would like to do it this coming Sunday, please get in touch with Tyler James, our family and executive pastor, and he'll be able to take care of that for you. Okay? All right. Um, I think we're, I'm going to invite Justin up now, and then we'll have the reading after that. So I'm going to do a little All of Life interview with Justin and to help you get to know him a little bit, and then uh, we'll do the reading, and then he's going to preach. So Justin, good to see you. Thanks for good being here this afternoon. Yeah, you can clap for Hello. him. That's all right. Yeah. So I think sometimes people get confused because we talk about our our founding pastors, and sometimes we refer to Tom Schrader as our founding pastor, and sometimes yeah. we refer to you. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by the contrast between the two of you because you're, you're tall and athletic yeah. and good-looking. Yeah. And, and then there's Schrader. It's just uh, you guys really knew how to do this whole yeah. filling every gap thing. Uh, you yeah. remember that movie Twins with Schwarzenegger and DeVito? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. Okay. That was kind of the vibe we were going for. He had no idea I was going to do that, but that's how quick he is. So, And just so you know that I'm not bagging on Tom. Tom once... Uh, told this story in a sermon in Houston at Second Baptist Church. He said that when he was in high school, he went out for the basketball team and the coach said, we don't need you, we already have a ball. So Tom is really, was really self-aware, okay? So speaking of athleticism, um, I know that you went to Point Loma for college. Yeah. And you played baseball there, but yeah. only for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, because you felt called into something other than baseball, actually. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I did. The coaches agreed, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, uh, I felt called to minister when I was 16 and, and was pretty one track uh, my whole life from then. And so, yeah, played baseball, loved baseball, uh, and really enjoyed playing college baseball. But it came to a point where I realized, like, my ceiling is, is the, you know, the floor. And, uh, and and I, I feel called to ministry. And so I had opportunities to do that and felt like it was time. And you were deeply involved in like the college ministry at The Rock in, yeah. San, Diego, in San Diego, right? Yeah. yeah. So you planted Praxis Church, Praxis right. Tempe, when you were 25. Yeah. But you, and I know that sounds really young, and you were young. And of yeah. course, you know, you, you would say probably made some mistakes. But, Several. But, but, you didn't necessarily start a church with no ministry experience. Sure. And so you started this church, and you were sort of nomadic for a while, moving from place to place, getting kicked out of a couple places. But yeah. then you found that property where Redemption Tempe currently is, and you were Praxis Tempe, and the church really took off. Yeah. And then you found an opportunity to plant a site in Arcadia. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, because you were actually preaching at both congregations, right? 
Yes, so Tempe was growing, uh, we were running out of space, needed extra services. At one point we were actually in three, we were doing five services in three locations. Uh, and so I was going to Phoenix Seminary at the time and across the street from Phoenix Seminary was the original uh, Arcadia building and they had a banner out front that said rental space available. And I was on a break and didn't feel like going back to class. And so I uh, walked across the street, knocked on the door, and the pastor answered. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in your rental space. And he started showing me around. It was classrooms. And I'm like, okay, you know, interesting. He, we walk into the sanctuary, and uh, they had a whole handbell choir set up in the front of the sanctuary. And I'm like, not really our vibe, but all right, I can roll with it. And, um, and he said, yeah, we're actually trying to rent out the classroom space. And, uh, and I was like, okay, cool. But like, what if we rented the sanctuary space and you moved your church into this fellowship hall space and we used the sanctuary? And it was one of those, like, I'm late for class. Like, I just got to cut to the chase here. And, uh, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I think we could do that. And I'm like, well, that worked. And, uh, and so, yeah, we moved in and I was doing 9 a.m. in Tempe, driving, so I had, my dad drove me, other people drove me to a 10 a.m. at Arcadia, back to an 11 a.m. in Tempe, and then back to another location for a five and a 7 p.m. in Tempe. And uh, it was That was nuts. intense. It was a lot, it was a lot. And you kept your voice, that's good. Uh, yeah, you know, God, that's my main skill is I have a voice. So um, is, is, uh, uh, is Bud in here right now? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Bud yeah. and Tina. So I, I don't know if anybody else fits this description, but Bud and Tina were at Tempe when you planted Arcadia. Yeah. They were part of the original 60. Yeah. Right? Stand up, you guys. Go yeah. ahead. That's all right. Oh, geez. Yeah. And they're still a part of Redemption Arcadia right now, so that's Love really it. exciting. And then in, in uh, 2011, the beginning of 20, no, the beginning of 2010 was when the merger happened? Uh, yeah, we started talking about it in 2010. It actually went into, into place 2011. January yeah. 1st, 2011. Yeah. East Valley Bible Church, Tom's Church, merged with yeah. Praxis, Tempe, and Arcadia to become Redemption Church. Yeah. And then nine months later, you decided you were going to plant a church in San Francisco. Yeah, I got bored real quick. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, we just decided, yeah, planting in San Francisco was something I dreamed about my whole life. And, and there was just this moment where we had leadership in place in Tempe and we had what we thought was the right leadership in Arcadia before Frank. Uh, Frank was the right leadership. Uh, and, and it was just this kind of moment of, man, uh, either we're going to put down roots 10 years, 15 years in Arizona, or we had an opportunity to maybe go plant in San Francisco. So did. from San Francisco, you went, eventually went up to Portland. To Seattle, yeah. Oh, oh you never stopped in Portland? I thought I you kind of worked I was born in up. Portland. You were born in born Portland. Born in Portland. That's okay. where the whole thing started. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Still getting the narrative then, yeah, straight yeah, in my mind. Yeah. But from there, you went to Seattle. Yeah. And you planted an icon church up there. Right. We actually have had a couple people move to Seattle because they were working for Amazon and they started going to your church up yeah. there. And then more recently, you, you believe that it was time to move back south. And so talk a little bit about that, what you're doing yeah. there. Yeah, so um, the, it turns out Seattle's rainy. Uh, who knew? Uh, and could, could have used a heads up on that. Uh, and uh, my wife hated it. And so uh, we did five years in Seattle, and, uh, and she tapped out. And so uh, we uh, transitioned our third church plant, so planted here in San Francisco and, and Seattle, uh, plant, uh, transitioned that plant, and we just moved to Los Angeles. And uh, guys, I hate LA. Uh, like, I'm a Phoenix guy. I hate the Lakers. Uh, I, I, I hate the Dodgers. Amen. Like, what am I doing? My son's going to grow up a Dodger fan. I just, I can't get there. Um, but it was, uh, there's sunshine and there's warmth and there's, uh, we're halfway between the Bay Area where my wife's family is in Phoenix. And uh, it's, it's, it's the next thing. And you just, you told me yesterday you closed on your house Friday. Yeah. So you actually yeah, just have a house, house yeah. now. Yeah. 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 You have a wife, Emily. I do. And how many kids? I lose five track. Children. You have five children. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you would fit in right here at Arcadia. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, so, so you're carrying the um, legacy forward. Well, last thing I want to mention is uh, uh, you're coming in doing uh, maybe the most challenging of the topics that we're going to have. We're also going to have... Um, biblical sexual ethic in a couple of weeks, but mm -hmm. you're doing maybe the most challenging, especially in our current cultural uh, situation, but we've brought you in because you've done a deep dive on all of this stuff. So 
How do you feel about coming in with the most challenging topic uh, for the first time in maybe three years to your church? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it, <laughs> I, I haven't preached at Arcadia since my last Sunday in Phoenix before going to San Francisco, and I thought, you know, I'd love to come back and preach about how much Jesus loves you or something, um, but we'll do gender, and, uh, and it'll be great. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I, I preached basically this sermon uh, in our first couple of weeks at Icon when we planted, and, and our church in Seattle was right in the middle of a neighborhood called Capitol Hill, which is the primary kind of LGBTQ neighborhood in Seattle. And uh, if, you, if you remember during the COVID and all that, the, the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone and all of that, our church was inside of that. Uh, and so... Um, this went over really well, and, uh, and so, um, no, but it, it, it started a conversation for us, and I'll tell a few stories here uh, this morning, but this has been really at the center of our ministry, uh, and, and it's, it's a really, really important topic for us to be thinking well about as Christians. Well, let me pray for you, and then we'll have our reader come up, yeah. and we'll uh, turn you loose, okay? Father God, we're thankful uh, that we get to uh, keep in touch with our past and make it part of our present and future. And we're just thankful that Justin made the time to be able to come here uh, today and share with us. So we pray that you'd bless him, that uh, your spirit would uh, fill him, and that your spirit would carry his words, God. And uh, um, we, just, we just rely on you, we trust you, and we ask you to bless this time that we're together. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis 1, 26, 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Well, it is very good to be back and to be with you all here today. It's fun to see some familiar faces and some new faces. Uh, you guys are getting better looking, uh, which is which is great, uh, much better looking than I remembered. Uh, so, so that's a win. Um, we have a lot to do today uh, in, uh, on this subject, and so I, I want us to jump right in. Um, there are a lot of challenges associated with this topic, especially in, uh, in our day and age. I was thinking about this. Um, that if, you know, Frank had called me three years ago even and said, hey, I want you to come and talk about gender at Arcadia, um, this would have been a really different sermon. Uh, I probably would have talked about the complementary nature of men and women and how, uh, what, what that looks like and a kind of a vision for that, a biblical kind of idea of gender that way. Um, so much has changed so rapidly in our world and in our culture um, that this message is just a message I never would have thought to need to preach. Uh, until now. And so it, it presents some challenges, and uh, the challenges are, are, are several. One is that this is a constantly evolving conversation, right? The, the, the people having this conversation in public don't even always agree with each other about what we're talking about and defining terms, and the, the terms themselves are changing so rapidly um, that that creates a challenge. There's, there's almost like a, a timestamp that we have to put on this message to go, hey, this is how we're thinking and talking about it today, uh, September 12th, 2021, uh, but like, I don't know what the conversation exactly is going to look like uh, a year from now. So that's, that's a real challenge. Um, the second major challenge I find is that there are kind of three audiences that I could imagine talking about this issue to. And there are three wildly different conversations that I would want to have with those audiences. Even though the, the content might not be wildly different, the, the tone and the posture, uh, the way in which I, I might uh, approach those conversations would be really, really different. So I was thinking about that. Like, if 
I was sitting down, as I have, with a trans person, someone who identified as a transgendered person, I would have a very, very different conversation with that person um, than I would somebody who is perhaps uh, not a Christian and wants to kind of understand or more likely argue about this issue with me from a Christian perspective and try to understand, like, why do I think what I think and, and maybe fight about it a little bit. Um, and, and again, a third category of person, which I would imagine is the vast majority of us today, which is Christians who are trying to figure out how do we think about these issues? How can we be prepared to think well about them in public, in our workspace where we go to school and in our families and, and neighborhoods and all of that, and, and possibly even uh, kind of have a, a defense, if that's not too aggressive of a word, but at least some understanding about how can we talk about these issues, right? And all of this was driven home to me in a very personal way in the last two weeks. I mean, very providentially, um, my, uh, two of my good friends in Seattle, uh, the husband was an elder candidate for us at Icon, um, own a CrossFit gym. And, uh, and, and for all the, the, the jokes and the problems with CrossFit and the bros and the tattoos and the whole thing, I love it. And so uh, I was uh, a part of their CrossFit gym and the gym was 90%, uh, 90% of the members of the gym were LGBT, which is just a situation I have never found myself in in my whole life. Right? There are just not a lot of spaces in the world that are 90% LGBT, right? I mean, there's just not. And so I was regularly the only uh, kind of straight person in the room. Uh, and so that was a really unique experience. Add on to that the competitive nature of CrossFit, which is the part I love about it, right? I love winning. And I love, I love when you lose to me. Uh, I, <laughs> That's probably my favorite part of it. And, and, and I love that there's a scoreboard so you know that you lost to me and it's public, okay? So everybody else can know too. And so that's like my favorite part. And so it was a unique experience to be in this competitive athletic space with primarily LGBT people. And here's the thing, I loved it. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. In fact, when we left Seattle, I cried about one thing. I don't cry as a rule, uh, but I cried about one thing and it was leaving the gym. I got emotional every single time I talked about it, right? Because I built real relationships with these people. They knew I was a pastor. They, they knew that the owners of the gym were Christians. And, and I, I thought we had this thing where we had this little enclave of, of understanding and, and unity and, and all of this. Well, shortly after we moved away, um, this sermon that I had preached at Icon and the, the one the, the next week on sexuality began to circulate amongst the coaches uh, at, at the gym and then from the coaches to the members. And it escalated to the point that the coaches confronted the owners, my friends, uh, in a very aggressive kind of screaming match kind of way. Uh, and as a result, my friends have lost their gym. Uh, all of the coaches quit and said they, they won't work for them. Uh, immediately, 25% of the members quit, and it was kind of inevitable that the rest of them would as well. Uh, there was no conversation, no interest in understanding. After years of relationship, the, the, the owners had hired all of the, 100% of the coaches were LGBT. They had hired all of them, cared for them, loved them, walked with them. None of it mattered. In a moment, it was over. That happened two weeks ago. And so this, this idea, this issue has become such a, a, an emotional, such an important, such a personal issue for people that it's actually, I went back and listened to that original sermon and I, and I listened to it in, in, with, with fresh eyes and fresh ears to go, okay, I, I want to understand now, like, what was it that these people heard that caused such angst in them? So I come to the pulpit today with a lot of fear and trembling, knowing that there are likely people in this room who are either identify as trans person but have not come out yet, or perhaps you have, or perhaps that's a, that's a tension inside you that you have not yet named, 
or that you are one degree of separation from someone who would fit that description. And so I feel like this is the absolute worst possible environment to have this conversation with you, if that's who you are. So let me just acknowledge that this will absolutely fail if this is the only context in which you're having this conversation. So I would just please beg you, if that is who you are, come talk to Frank, come talk to one of the Tylers. There seem to be several around here. They're, they're, uh, talk to someone. They love you, 100%. Like without question, without hesitation, they love you and want to know you and walk with you, okay? If you are here and you are not a Christian uh, and, and you are all, already fired up about this topic and the fact that we're talking about it here, um, this is a terrible conversation, uh, terrible, terrible context to have that conversation because I, I, I would want to ask you a lot of questions and understand where you're coming from and understand the ways that you think about it and I can't do any of that here today. And so I apologize, this is not going to scratch that itch for you. But again, I would invite you to talk to uh, Frank and the Tylers, which is a great band name, by the way. <laughs> Something to think about. Um, uh, and, and, and have that, that conversation. So what I primarily want to accomplish today in what little time we have left is, um, that clock says 24 minutes, that can't be right. It's gotta be double that at least. All right, so uh, what I wanna accomplish is to equip you to be able to think well about this issue from a Christian perspective. So unabashedly Christian perspective, here's how we get where we got, and then we'll talk about what we might do next. So I wanna do three things. One, I wanna lay down some theological foundations, because I think that's really at the heart of why we have such uh, trouble talking about this stuff. So theological foundations. I want to talk specifically about transgenderism and the ideology uh, surrounding it and gender fluidity and, and some of these issues. Um, and then three, I want to talk about a biblical vision for complementary gender, which is like, gosh, that's books and sermon series, but we're going to do it in about five minutes. Uh, and then for what, what to do next. So let's jump in. Theological foundations. Um, everyone comes to this and every issue with presuppositions, right? There are ways in which we think. There are assumptions that we have that, that often we are blind to. We don't, they're just unconscious assumptions that we come to life with. And so we come to issues like this. We don't think hard about it. We don't think real consciously about it. We come with some presuppositions about the way the world is, the way the world works. And, and it is my contention that one of the main reasons why Christians and non-Christians or people who have, you know, kind of a more uh, orthodox, historically orthodox position on gender and sexuality and those who do not are at such odds and often miss each other and talk past each other is because we start from different theologies theological foundations. And even if you are an atheist, you have theological foundations. Whether you know it or not, that's another sermon. Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is the foundation of the foundation of the foundation. This is where it all begins. It's uh, page 1 in your Bible, I guarantee it. In the beginning, God. This is where we begin. As Christians, we begin here. In the beginning, God. God, for the Christian, is where reality begins. God is the first mover in creation. He is first in terms, not just chronological, but in terms of primacy, in terms of authority. In the beginning, God. God is at the center of the universe. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and much of postmodern ideology. We begin with, in the beginning, God. Much postmodern ideology philosophy begins with, I think, therefore I am. The human is at the center of the universe. The human being, the individual, is the center of authority, is the center of kind of perspective from which to see the world. The human, you, the individual, is the kind of locus of power and authority in the world. Christians begin with, in the beginning, God. These two ideas can, in a sense, explain all of our differences. And we'll see how this plays out. In the beginning, God created the first act 
of that sovereign, powerful, authoritative God was to create, to make and fashion a world the way in which he desired to make and fashion the world, right? Anyone who makes things sets out to make a thing that is a reflection of their desire. Whatever it is they desire to produce, that is what they produce, Right? So God, being sovereign and powerful and, and un, unencumbered by any inabilities, creates a world that is the exact reflection of his desire. That is the authority of God. That is the power of God to create that universe. Jump down to verse 26. After making all the things, it says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Right? So God creates all the things, and then the apex of his creation, the greatest piece of his creation, if I do say so myself, was me. It was us. It was humans. So God bestows upon us, makes us, forms us in his own image to reflect him, to be his icons on the earth that gives us inherent dignity and value and worth. So for the Christian, we would say that our truest identity, the truest thing about us is that we are image bearers of God, that he made us, stamped us with his image and said, you are mine. I created you out of my own desire, out of my own purpose, and I made you exactly how I wanted you to be. And then I gave you my image, which, which is the source of our identity, value, worth, and dignity. So that you and you and you and you and you and the person you hate the most is made in the image of God, equally worthy of value and honor and dignity and respect, not because of what they do or what can they can accomplish. It's not, uh, we're, we're, we don't give out value based on abilities. Value for the Christian is based on their creation, the work of God in them. So then God gave us not only uh, dignity and value and an identity, but he also gave us a purpose. It says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I always like to imagine that whoever was writing this got started the list, the livestock and the birds, and then quickly realized, gosh, this is going to be a really long list. Um, so I'm just going to go every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Like that just, otherwise we'd be here forever, right? So God gives humans purpose. Their purpose is to have dominion over, which means to cultivate, care for, and protect, to have dominion over all of God's creation as representatives of him so that we might have dominion, we might cultivate, protect, and care for in the same way that he would because we are his icons, his representatives. We are, our, our purpose is to carry out his character and will on the earth. So we've been given not only identity and value and worth, but we've also been given purpose, right? We are what the creator made us to be. Verse 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Maleness and femaleness together most fully image God. This, this is true in marriage, but it doesn't have to be true in marriage. It's also true in community, right? The, the maleness and femaleness together most fully images God so that we can't do it on our own. It's not just men who image God. It's not just women who image God, but it is men and women together. And then everything goes bad really quickly. Right? Genesis chapter 3, if you want to turn there, it's probably like page 2. This is review for, I, I hope, most of you. This idea of creation made in the image of God, God's intention, all this, but it is core to understanding how we get where we get around gender. So Genesis 3 now is what we call the fall, where sin enters the world and kind of breaks everything. So start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, 
You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now hear this. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation in the garden was the temptation to power. More than that, it was the temptation to autonomy. Satan comes to Adam and Eve, who are both there together, and says, hey, so why doesn't God want you to fulfill your greatest potential? Why, why are you content to live under the authority of God? You could be like God, but God's holding you down. The fullest expression of yourself, if you just act autonomously, is to be like God. You have the spark of divinity in you, if he was going to write a self-help book, and he is. Um, but the spark of divinity is in you. God is holding you down. You ought to be the fullest expression of yourself. If you were autonomous, you would be like God. One way to understand the fall is that the core temptation in all of us is to autonomy. So again, to review, the Christian story is God, God created God gave us identity and value. God gave us purpose, but we wanted autonomy. We wanted to be our own thing, define our own world. I have a three-year-old. He is a living incarnation of sin. <laughs> There's nothing good in him. So th this is our theological foundation, that, that the world has broken us in significant ways, right? And this is where we can all agree. We, we all agree that we all have desires that we call wrong, right? Like, I, I don't care who you are. I don't care wh what your background is or your faith commitments. We all have desires in us that we tamp down. Right, a million times a day, we make a decision that is, uh, yes, that's good, or no, that's bad. We have two boxes, the good box and the bad box. And we regularly, a million times a day, make a decision that go, oh, this desire is welling up in me, good box or bad box? Good box or bad box? For me, that's a lot about fried food. <laughs> and I'm often choosing good box even though I know better. Right? So, so that, that is the core truth that no, no one's going to disagree with that, right? Like we have desires, we all tamp down our desires. Here's the question. How do we know what goes in the bad box and what goes in the good box? How do we know? So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you still have to answer that question. Like, how do you know what goes in the bad box and what goes in the good box? Because you all put things in the bad box. Maybe not as much as you should. Maybe some of you more than you should. I don't know. But you've made a decision that there are certain desires that go in the bad box and certain desires that go in the good box. How? For us, God, God created, God gave us identity and value and worth, God gave us purpose and the core sin is autonomy. That's how we decide. Now we do it imperfectly. We have things that we know go in the bad box, but we choose to do them anyway. That, that's a separate issue. But how we know what the bad box and the good box are for Christians starts with God, God created, God gave us identity, God gave us purpose, autonomy is our core sin. Okay? Make sense? That, that's the theological foundation. Now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is redeeming and restoring us back to what we were made to be. That's the, the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection is to restore us back to God. God created, gave us identity and purpose and value, and, and that's, that's who we were made to be. That's the work of restoration, okay? And that, that ought to be always the movement of Christian discipleship, right? A reorientation back to God, God created, gave me identity, purpose, what do I do? Good, good box, bad box, right? 
So this is fundamentally different than the primary kind of uh, theological foundation or philosophical foundation of the world around us, which says the highest ideal is autonomy. And the greatest uh, uh, virtue of autonomy is self-expression, honest self-expression, right? So then the vice according to our world, the core sin in our world is whatever suppresses my self-expression because that violates my autonomy. It's the opposite. Did you catch that? It's the opposite, which is why we talk past each other all the time and don't understand each other. Because if my core, core purpose is autonomy and the core virtue is self-expression, then you can't tell me I'm not anything I don't want to be. That's the core sin. But for the Christian, God made us, gives us dignity, value, purpose. Autonomy is our core sin. So we talk past each other. We miss each other. This is so important for us to understand as the theological underpinning of these ideas. Number two, let's talk about transgenderism and gender fluidity. Um, I, I went to Phoenix Seminary. I learned under Dr. Wayne Grudem. One of the things he taught me that I think is a, 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 uh, something that we could all do more of is if you can't represent your opponent's argument in a way your opponent would affirm, you're not doing it justice. Okay? So, Twitter. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so I, I want to define some of our terms, and to do that, I went to the Stonewall Organization, which is one of the primary LGBTQ rights organizations in our country. They define gender dysphoria this way. It's a term used to describe when a person experiences discomfort or distress because there is a mismatch between their sex assigned at birth and their gender identity, right? This is a self-identifying uh, you know, self kind, of, kind of thing. So the, the idea of gender dysphoria is my, my body and my feelings or, or my, my sense of self doesn't match up. Okay, this is a clinical term. It's like a technical term for that. Uh, transgender, uh, they would define as an umbrella term to describe people whose gender is not the same as or does not sit comfortably with the sex they were assigned at birth. Hard stop. This would be terrible. Terribly difficult. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, and maybe some of you can, Waking up every morning feeling a, a genuine disconnect between your brain and your sense of self and, and the body you have. I can't even imagine. This sounds so horribly difficult. I, I don't have words to, to, to describe the, the depth, the personal nature, the, the centrality of that feeling. I mean, there's, there are a few things more personal and more core to who we are than our sense of self and, and how our sense of self correlates to our bodies and the person we see in the mirror. So, man, if we as Christians come at this issue with anything but radical compassion and love, we have fundamentally missed it. That there is nothing but compassion and love that ought to come from us as our first instinct towards people who experience this. So we're going to talk about clinical stuff. We're going to talk about some philosophical issues. Let us never miss the hardship that these people are experiencing, have experienced, brutally difficult. And if that doesn't sober us, like I don't want you to ever have a conversation, an argument, a philosophical discussion with a trans person or someone who is in that community until that is core in you because you will misrepresent the heart of God for that person and you will do extreme damage to them if you come at them with philosophical arguments that aren't founded on a basis of compassion and love. So please just don't talk to them if you've got judgment first in your heart. The most important thing you could hear from me today is that these men and women are made in the image of God. 
every bit as much as you. Every bit as much as you. There is no difference. They are loved by God, bestowed within us. They reflect God. And if we don't see that first, we, we don't see them. Um, gender dysphoria, uh, according to DSM-5, which is a clinical journal that they, uh, defines all this stuff, uh, approximately 0.005 to 0.014% of men, 0.002 to 0.003% of women experience gender dysphoria. Um, that, that may sound like a very small number given uh, kind of the outsized nature of the impact of, of these issues, and, and it is, but we have seen as a result of this a massive cultural shift. My daughter, who is now a seventh grader, uh, when she was a second grader in a public school in Seattle, uh, a little girl uh, became a little boy uh, in, uh, during the, her, their second grade year. The, uh, the teachers sat the kids down, this celebrated it, this is fantastic, we're all for this. Um, didn't tell the parents, uh, providentially, my daughter missed that day of school. Uh, and so we just got an email saying, hey, we had a conversation in class today, your, your kids may have come home with questions. If you have questions, go to genderspectrum.org uh, and that should answer your questions. I had more questions uh, and, uh, and, and that uh, now, uh, these kinds of issues, gender fluidity, are uh, officially part of the curriculum in Seattle Public Schools starting in kindergarten. So this is a, uh, it's here, right? Like it, it is, this is happening, even though it is a tiny, tiny percentage of our country, uh, statistically speaking, the ideas behind it are having a massive impact. And so it's the ideas that I wanna talk about, and it's impossible to say it enough times to separate the ideas from the people, but I'm just gonna keep saying it. So um, all of this, as you can imagine, is the natural expression of that ideology that says uh, that autonomy is at the core, self-expression is the greatest virtue, and, and uh, suppression of my self-expression is the greatest vice, right? There are some challenges, uh, I think, that, that are associated with this. First, psychologically. Um, until 2013, gender dysphoria was called gender identity disorder and treated as a disorder. Right, So it's only been about eight years that it has not been uh, considered a disorder, but there is still concern in the medical field. So um, the American College of Pediatricians, which is a, a core secular pediatrician kind of group of doctors, uh, young or said this in a statement, young children are being sterilized, surgically maimed under the guise of treating a condition that would otherwise resolve in 80% of cases. So young children who are having gender questions uh, are being surgically uh, addressed and, uh, and, and statistics say that 80% of those children will eventually kind of grow out of it, so to speak. Dr. Paul McHugh, who is the psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital, stopped performing sex change surgeries. He was one on the leading edge of this, um, historically speaking. He stopped, and Johns Hopkins stopped saying, I concluded that to provide a surgical alteration to the body of these unfortunate people was to collaborate with mental disorder rather than to treat it. One of the, one of the really, I think, important questions to ask, right? So gender dysphoria is basically there's a disconnect between my brain and my body. My body is one way, objectively, um, but my brain feels a different way. Um, what, what doctors have done is said, for forever, that's a, that's, a, that's a disorder, that's a problem, it's literally disordered. Um, it's very similar to the way anorexia works, right? There is a fundamental disconnect that object, these, primarily women, are objectively thin women, and yet their brain sees them as overweight, and doctors treat that as a disorder, as it is, that there is a disconnect there. And so we look at anorexia and go disconnect between body and mind, problem. Uh, gender dysphoria, disconnect between body and mind, affirmation. There are a lot of doctors who have massive concerns about this uh, as, as well they should. The reality is if gender dysphoria is the disorder that many believe that it is, affirming that hurts those people. It does not help those people. 
There are also philosophical problems, and I'll go quickly through this. Um, the ideology of gender fluidity and transgenderism cannot answer a question as simple as, what is a woman? Okay? The, the ideology cannot answer the question, what is a woman? Over the last hundred years or so, feminism has rightly broken down many gender stereotypes about what women are and what men are and what women should do and what men should do and how women dress and how men dress. And a lot of that was social constructs that absolutely should have been torn down and have been. Problem is, the result is at odds with this ideology of gender fluidity, right? So it undercuts our ability to say what a woman is. It can't be behavioral, right? We can't define a woman by what they do, how they behave, because we've broken down those stereotypes, right? It's not just, not just boys who play with trucks and girls who play with dolls. That's not how we think about that anymore, and rightly so. So we can't define a woman behaviorally, but now it can't, also cannot be socially, right? It's not like, well, women do have these relationships or play this role in society. Men play this role in society. We don't do that anymore. So we can't define it behaviorally. We can't define it socially. And now we can't define it biologically, right? So we can't say, well, a woman is someone who has uh, these chromosomes and a man is someone who has these chromosomes or these physical attributes. We can't say that anymore. So then what is a woman? Well, according to this ideology, a woman is anyone who desires to be a woman, who feels like a woman. But there are two problems with that philosophically. One, desire makes for terrible ontology. This is my smart word of the day, ontology. Ontology is a, the, a, a, the idea of being. Right? What am I? Ontology is to say the, the, the kind of truest sense of being, right? And so we would say, they would say, desire to be a woman makes one a woman. But see, desire makes for bad ontology, and we know this because we've already rejected this idea in a number of other cases. Some years ago, there was a woman, if you remember, named Rachel Dolezal, who was a white woman who identified as black. And as a country, we went, nah, <laughs> like that's not a thing. You can't, you can't do that. But she desired it. She identified that way. She, she felt that way. But we said no, rightly. Um, there are admittedly fringe cases, but if you look it up on the internet, I don't recommend you do, um, that uh, people identify as animals. Transspecies is a term that I don't recommend Googling. Um, there are some who identify as trans age. I read about an unfortunate 52-year-old man who identifies as a six-year-old boy and lives as such with adopted parents in England, of course. <laughs> That's a thing. It's fringe, but it follows the logic. It follows logic of desire. I have a sense of who I am. Sure, it doesn't match up with my biology, but it's who I, who I want to be. So desire makes for bad ontology because it, it has, spins out all these other ideas of like, well, my, my four-year-old thinks she's a unicorn. That, that's unicorn with an M, not a unicorn. I'm not sure what the difference is, but she's convinced she's a unicorn. I'm not treating her as such. Second problem, let, let's just assume that desire can, can work for ontology. Think about the snake eating its own tail of this situation. What is it that these people actually desire? If, if you have a desire to be transgender, it can't be biological because we've eliminated that category. It can't be behavioral. I don't want to act like a woman because what's that mean? What does it mean to act like a woman? can't be social, like I wanna, I wanna have this role in society because we've done away with that. So what does it actually mean to desire to be a woman? And what's remarkable is when Caitlyn Jenner first did her transition and there were interviews about her, she would talk about being a woman in all these extremely 1960s stereotypical kind of ways. She talked about wanting to wear high heels and wear dresses. And it was like, guys, we're back to this. This is what it means. Like we've come full circle to now we're defining I want to be a woman because I want to wear high heels and wear dresses. Like 
That doesn't make sense. We, we've, we've kind of lost the thread here, philosophically speaking. Okay? There's all kinds of practical application for this. We're going to keep moving. Uh, number three, very quickly, no, we're going to skip three, four. What do we do? Let's talk about what do we do. First, and I'm going to say this again. I've said it several times already, but I'm going to say it again. No one, no one should love trans people more than Christians. No one. We, Paul says to outdo one another in love. Christians should outdo everyone else in the world when it comes to loving trans people. That ought to be our heart from the very bottom of it to love them as we would any other image bearer of God. Have we done this? Very much no. I'm not indicting anyone on an individual level, but as a faith, as a people, the American church, we have not done a great job of having love and compassion be our first foot forward with the trans community. And that is a, a sin to be repented of. They are image bearers of God, no different. Fundamentally, God's children, also fundamentally broken, like you. Not in the same way, not the same issues, not the same, whatever, but exactly as in need of grace as you. No one should love trans people more than Christians. Number two, as culture shifts, we need to be prepared to give an answer for our convictions. This series is called Countercultural Convictions. These convictions are countercultural. You ought to be able to think well and to be prepared. And prepare, preparation is as much about what's going on up here and what you know and what you have thought about as it is kind of your guts to have these conversations. My experience has been as a pastor that when people shift on this issue, it does not primarily start here and then work itself out into relationship. It starts with relationship. And they go, oh, but I met this person and I, I don't want to have a hard conversation or I don't want to lose my job or I don't want to whatever. And then it becomes a rationalization of what's happening up here. So we need to have some sense of where, how, how we get here and what our, our convictions are. But we've also got to have some guts and some real conviction about these issues or else that will shift. Um, three, prepare to lose. Um, there is no winning this battle. My, my friends are, uh, are an example of that. They are not the only ones. Uh, our church got kicked out of uh, the very first church building we uh, were meeting in precisely because of this issue. Um, we, we are losing, we will lose this battle at a cultural level. That's okay. That's, we're, not, we're not here to win. We're here to be faithful. Uh, we don't measure our success in the world by the amount of political or social or cultural influence that we have. That's a icing on the cake in a largely Christendom society. Vast majority of Christians throughout the world have had zero cultural, social, political power. They've been faithful. So prepare to lose, which means we need to put our trust in Jesus, not politicians. Jesus, not influencers. Put our trust in Jesus. Lean into the community because we're going to need each other. Many of you will lose jobs if you stand up for these countercultural convictions. Some of you have, perhaps. You will lose. You will need each other. So let's begin to cultivate the kind of community that can be mutually supportive because the world's changing and we've got to be faithful. So let's entrust our lives to Jesus, not to a political actor that we think can accomplish our ends and maintain our influence and control in, in culture. That's a losing battle that we've never been, God never called us to that battle. Trust Jesus, be the church, be faithful. 
Jesus was raised on the third day. He died. This world put him to death. That's the path he set for us. The way of the cross is the way of death. The way of the cross is the way of faithfulness unto death and resurrection on the other side. That's the promise. Not a linear line to cultural influence and power. Death and resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, cover my faults and failures in this sermon with your grace. Those who are in this room that are hurt and hurting, who are confused and angry, who are scared about the future, cover them with your grace and mercy. Be for them what I cannot be. Be for them what nobody else can be for them. Be their God and Savior. Be their Father and Lord. Be their support. And I pray that we as a church here at Redemption Arcadia, around the Redemption churches and around the valley and the country, that we would demonstrate your love to those around us. Particularly the trans community and trans people who experience just an unthinkable disconnection between their minds and their bodies. May we approach them with genuine love and compassion. God, do that work in our heart. We need your grace. Because I think that's not often our first response. And so we, we need to repent of sin and get more grace. Please give that to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as always, we're going to transition to a time of response. We're going to sing together. There'll be people to pray with uh, on the sides up front here. Uh, man, if, if you're in a position where having someone to pray with would be a, a real blessing to you, come pray with these people. They, they want to pray with you. Take advantage of this opportunity. Um, we take communion every week here because we believe that there's never a week we don't need to be reminded that Jesus went to the cross for our sins. Not somebody else's sins. Not, not, not something out there. Us. I put Jesus on the cross. You put Jesus on the cross. That we are culpable. We have to be reoriented back to the fact that we have chosen to, to pursue the things that ought to be in the bad box. And that Jesus' work is to restore us back to who he created us to be. So we come forward and we take the cup and the bread and we partake of that remembering Christ's sacrifice that at great cost to himself, at great suffering, at death, by his death, we are made whole. Not by power, not by will, not by might, by death. But that's the path for us. So we might celebrate that he has accomplished what we never could. So let's do that together.
Thank you guys for being here and worshiping with us this morning. Thank you, Justin, for being faithful to bring God's word. Uh, my name's Trey. I'm the next gen pastor, um, which means that I oversee kind of discipleship from sixth grade on to young adults. Um, tomorrow night, if you're a young adult, by the way, we'll have uh, right in here at 7 p.m. some dinner and we'll talk about God's word. Um, but after that, I just want to read the benediction over us. But before I do that, today's Orientation Sunday. Orientation, uh, getting oriented with church. It's the only meaning of oriented for Orientation Sunday. But um, I'll meet back at the Connect desk. And if you're new or you've been coming for a little bit and you just want to learn about our church, you want to learn about Arcadia, you want to learn about the different things that we have, you want to get involved, I would love to talk to you. I'll take a little quick walk around the campus and then we'll meet and have a little party with the staff. Nobody else calls it that, just I do. But party with the staff on the patio, you get to meet everybody who is a part of the ministry that we got going here and what God's doing. Um, but yeah, we'd love to, I'd love to meet you. Uh, let me read this over us as our benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go into your week. We love you. Thank you for being here. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.